Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. This week's episode is the best of 2020. What a year it has been for all of us. I mean, it's been so bizarre and so challenging for everyone. So I really do hope that tuning into this podcast has been uplifting and motivating throughout the year. It certainly has been that for me. And it really means a lot. Every single person who has rated the show, the reviews, the comments, the shares, it's really made it worthwhile. So thank you. And big shout out to all of the guests. We've managed to record and keep the show going each week. We've been recording remotely. I leveled up my at-home podcast studio game. I got a mic and I made a sound booth out of duvets and cushions. Top tip. So we've tried to deliver the show with best audio as possible, but it's definitely had some challenges this year. So big shout out to all of the incredible guests that have been on the show this year. I wish I could have featured them all in this episode, but we've just pulled out some different conversations for today's compilation episode. I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. Stay safe, stay well, and thank you so much for tuning in to the Power Hour podcast. You know, sometimes people will say, well, that's just who I am. You know, I just can't, you know, they can't seem to change this mindset that they can't, you know, do a certain thing or oh, I'm just not good at that. Or, you know, how can you, yeah, just kind of give them a little bit of a framework of like what neuro- neuroplasticity is and how through repetition, personally, I believe anyway, you can rewrite all of that stuff, you know, all the past stuff, what you were good at, what you weren't good at. And actually through repetition and daily practice of anything, essentially, you could master it. Yeah, so one thing I would say is no baby comes into this world and says, don't look at me, I'm having a bad day, feeling anxious today. Just no baby says that. Mm-hmm. Babies look at you and they're full of light and life and they're girling and usually smiling. And then we learn all sorts of things and we are pretty much like empty canvases for the first kind of seven, eight years of our life. And we then learn from our environment our belief systems, how the world works. And some of these beliefs are brilliant. And obviously, you know, we're learning how to live. But a lot of the beliefs that we end up um, inheriting can be very limiting or, you know, and it can be as small as, you know, a teacher says, oh, God, you're useless. And then we internalize that as, oh, my God, I'm useless. And that then stays in our subconscious. So you can't delete your subconscious That's a fact. But what has been proven by science is that our brain is always plastic. So we can always challenge our old beliefs and learn new ones. And neuroplasticity is basically a fancy word to say that your brain is plastic. So I was doing a talk the other day and someone put up their hand. And just as you were saying, they said, yeah, but I'm just an anxious person. Well, the science doesn't necessarily support the statement, I'm just an anxious person, because science shows that you have the ability to change anything. And that I found really liberating because I also was that person that used to say, I'm just a stressed person. I'm just an anxious person. I'm just a warrior. Mm. And um, and through repetition and practice, and our, and our brain is always trying to find new paths. And our brain is also trying to be really efficient and uh, and find the easiest path to go down. So that's why sometimes it's really hard to create new beliefs because our brain is like, oh, no, it was easier just to go down the old belief of thinking I'm no good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is why neuroplasticity to me was like liberation. I was like, yes, it means like, God, like someone has shown me that I don't need to be stuck with this. And, um, and that's what I just think is so brilliant about positive psychology and the research that's been done in the last 40 years to, to be a gateway to much more kind of mental freedom than I believe possible. Absolutely. Like you said, it's a game changer. It's so liberating to learn it. And I I had the same exact feeling. I felt like, hang on a minute. So as you said, when that person said to me, oh, Adrienne, you talk too much or oh, Adrienne, you're you're the sporty one or whatever these beliefs are that people put on you as a label, you kind of just accept and go, "Okay, cool. But then actually, yeah, it took me years to kind of challenge those and go, "Okay, if I talk too much, maybe that's because my passion is speaking, interviewing, using my voice and that actually... I can just use that as, you know, I can, I can hone that skill. I can work that. And as you said, rewiring this understanding and this belief that something negative actually could be something really, really positive. Hence now being the host of this podcast. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's brilliant when you, you know, really go back and unpick and try to start to understand that whatever the story, whatever the belief, whatever the skill set, you can change it. It's so empowering. We're the only species on the planet that can do that. So anyway, I'm going down this whole rabbit hole, but I want to bring it back a little bit to for people listening to this show right now. This situation is crazy. Something that is coming up a lot for in questions and a lot that I'm hearing is sleep. People talking about the fact maybe right now their sleep has changed and they they're either not sleeping or they're having wild dreams or they're anxious about not being able to fall asleep. Um, and I did do a, a a podcast interview last year with a sleep scientist, Dr. Sophie Bostock. It was amazing. But I know there's also guides and about sleep on your app. So yeah, could you give us some takeaways for sleep and how if our sleep is changing right now, what could we potentially do to help? Yes, absolutely. So we um, have got an amazing sleep meditation um, teacher. Uh, he's actually a sleep hypnotist called Daniel Ryan on the Happy Not Perfect app. And uh, he is phenomenal. And really hypnotism, if anyone is wondering what that is, it's just a form of deep, deep relaxation. And uh, usually when we're feeling very stressed and we can't go to sleep, um, our body is feeling as tense as our mind. And because through biofeedback, our obviously body and mind are in constant communication. So a tip to help you fall asleep is to focus on relaxing the body. Because if you relax your body, your body then sends signals to your mind to say, it's safe. And I love going back to Caveman Times because it explains so much of our behavior. But when, for example, we wake up in the middle of the night, again, our brain thinks it's doing a good job. Because if you think about it, back in Caveman Times, if we, if we sense danger, our brain would want to wake us up so we could defend ourselves. And so usually we get woken up if we haven't been able to process the what's gone on in the day. And we're waking up to kind of finish that processing or um, because otherwise that potentially could be dangerous for whatever reason we're worrying about. So another great trick to stop that worrying mind from waking you up is to journal before bed. Mm-hmm. And um, this then, uh, and when you journal, and that's why uh, actually in the happiness workout, we have a journaling step. This activates your prefrontal cortex, that computer side. And by doing so, you start relaxing the emotional center. And then again, you're helping your brain go to sleep. So I, I like to think that sleep 
we almost have to get into a relationship with sleep. We've got to help our sleep. It's not just like, okay, get really angry. Like, why have I not fallen asleep in the first 30 seconds? Oh my God. It's actually like, okay, what can I do to help this process? Because it is, it's a constant back and forth um, between our sleeping self and ourself. Um, and actually, I think I interviewed recently Dr. Neil Stanley, who's been a sleep researcher for the last 25 years. And, um, and he is just like, just says it how it is. And and um and he said you know um there is no reason why we should have trouble sleeping because we have we living in the best times ever if you think about it you know the Western world, they usually have a nice bed, you know, there's usually central heating if we're cold, um, you know, we're not in huts, we're not in tents, um, but yet we still can't sleep and often we are our own worst enemy because we're watching Netflix and stuck on tiger king till Mm -hmm. 2am um and um so it's 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 being quite disciplined with ourselves too saying okay i am going to give myself that hour without being stimulated by xyz and um i always love the quote the ceo of netflix said uh my greatest competitor um is sleep you know, he didn't say Amazon Prime or mm. any, or YouTube. He was like my biggest competitor asleep. And that just shows you if these huge corporate companies are seeing sleep as their competitor, it's in their interest to make you not sleep and for you to stay awake. And so they decrease commercial breaks um, so your attention doesn't leave what they're showing you. So just, again, be mindful about, you know, your the your sleep is the most important thing for you, for your, like your development, your, you know, your repairing, um, to help you set, set you up for the next day. And the commercial world want to take that away from you. So fight against them and mm. really prioritize your time before bed. Yeah, I think that's a great point because also, you know, right now I've listened to quite a lot of stuff recently around, you know, just optimizing our immunity and, you know, staying well in this situation. And it says that sleep is, you know, I think across the board, people are agreeing, whether it's doctors, you know, nutritionists, all agreeing that sleep is such a game changer for immunity, whether that's fighting a virus or just, you know, physical and mental health complaints. And actually, you know, if we are in a situation right now where we can create our sleep routine, go to bed at whatever time, get up. But, you know, we really are in control of that. That is something that we can control. I think it's really important to prioritize. I know it's easy to watch another episode and stay up. And it seems so boring to be like, oh, Adrienne, I'm always talking. Honestly, Poppy, for people who listen to this show, I'm always talking about getting to bed early, getting up early and kind of having this ninja type discipline in the evening to go to bed. But it's only because I've seen the impact that it has had in my own life. And then as soon as, you know, if it goes out the window for whatever reason and I am, you know, shifting and going to bed later, I feel the impact immeasurably, far more than anything else, far more than my training, my diet. Like it's literally, if sleep is good, everything's in line, you know? Yeah, totally. So one more thing before I move on to talk to you about the power hour, and this is about routine. So at the moment, I'm definitely seeing two camps again. There's one that's like, we know routine is good. Structure is good. Wake up in the morning, have a structure, do this throughout the day, time block, productivity. And then, and also for parents, you know, I'm a parent and homeschooling right now. It's like, okay, let's have this structure for kids during the day. But there's also people saying, you know, scrap the routine. This is not a normal time. We are currently living through a global pandemic forget the routine and just go with the flow feel whatever you feel if you don't want to get dressed don't worry about it and actually you know just when we get back to some kind of normal then we can think about you know routine but what would you say poppy what do you think 
I think that I agree with both. And this is when I just don't, I really fiercely don't agree with like people not personalizing the advice they hear to them. And, you know, for example, there's been some days and I love routine and it's the only thing that like gets me out of bed and, um, and, you know, helps me accomplish what I need to do that day and actually makes me feel good if I'm able to stick to my routine. But there's been, you know, some days where I'm like, oh God, just, oh, you know, and you just can't get the energy and you try all the hacks. And and then at that point, I'm in a great favor of just a compassionate, gentle handling with yourself. And if, you know, my friend called me yesterday, she said, I just can't concentrate today. And I said, just allow yourself to not concentrate today. And so I think there is just like a degree of flexibility we all need to allow ourselves because, yes, yeah, some days it's it's the routine is necessary and it's fantastic you said so good for kids but there's other days that we our body may just say okay I need to rest and this is a bit more intense than usual and I think people underestimate um the the how draining um uncertainty is Mm. and so just allowing yourself to have maybe one extra day where you like just take off the pressure and dial down the accelerator is maybe really healthy for you right now. Um, And so that's what I would say. Which I completely agree with you on the whole, you know, like personalizing the the information. One thing I'm going to challenge you on though, Poppy, is what about when, you know, like some people will say to me, oh, that's cool. But if I just do that, then basically I'm going to listen to myself. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to eat ice cream. I'm going to watch TV and I'm not getting dressed. And that's going to be the next day and the next day and the next day. Where do we kind of draw the line and step in and kind of go, you know what? This isn't going to be good for me long term. But right now, this is how I feel. And I can't break this loop. But I don't want to do this for two weeks or two months. Do you know what I mean? How could, what would you, what would you think? I think there's one thing being compassionate to yourself today and there's another thing being compassionate to your future self. So Mm. you make the choice who you want to be more compassionate to. Like, does your present self need it more than your future self? Because you know your future self is going to appreciate your routine and you're not doing that, but your present self may. So look, it's, and that is, that's, that's the, tr- the, tr- the, the trickiness of being human Mm. is that it, I think there is, a degree of restriction, right? And they always say you, you only can light a match if you have friction between the match and the lighter. And so I think that if you know, like, you're a Pringle and, you know, once you pop, you can't stop, <laughs> which which is really me when it comes to Pringles. I, like, demolish <laughs> packs of them. But um, but I think it's just, again, knowing what you're like. If, if you can be, if you can give yourself a bit more time, uh, maybe it's not the whole day, maybe it's the morning, but um, I think everything in moderation and moderation itself. All right, so let's talk. I mentioned in the intro that you were on SAS Who Dares Wins. You were incredible. I mean, firstly, were you prepared? Because I feel like now the show, maybe it's just more, maybe I'm more aware of it. Mm. But when you were on the show, were you prepared? Were you aware? Did you know what you were going into? And the second part of the question is, what did you learn about yourself during that process? So in terms of being prepared, 
it's impossible to be. I think in your head, before you go, you think, I am as prepared as I can be, but you get there and it all goes out the window because there is no possible way to prepare yourself for what happens in there. Like, because it's a TV show, it's very hard as a viewer to understand that it's minute on the minute every single day. Like, there's no such thing as time. And there's no such thing as a day anymore, okay? So we don't have days. It's just hours by hours by hours by hours. Your day is 24 hours. It's not like you're going to sleep and then wake up. It just is what it is. You get about three hours sleep in that time, wherever that might be. And whatever time of day it might be, you get fed at whatever time they want to feed you. And you have no idea what's going to happen. I think because it's a TV show, you under the illusion that they go, okay, in five hours we're going to meet here and you're going to jump into freezing cold water. So we'll meet you there. You know, get yourself ready. Have a little nap, have a snack, and we'll meet you there. It's not, you know, you can be laying in bed and an hour later you're under freezing cold water. And so in terms of preparation, nah. You, you're sleep deprived, food deprived, and your anxiety is through the roof. So that's the preparation side of it. What I learned from it massively was about living in the minute and I um it's like what you said earlier about Pinterest quotes like I hate all the cheesiness of like live like for the moment and all of that and you see it and I'm like oh yeah it's just cheesy and I preach it I say to people live for the moment live it but I actually lived in the minute for the first time in my life I thought I was doing it already I won't and what I mean by that is we have a schedule so Right now, you and I have a schedule just in our head. We know we're going to be here, and then I'm going to go off there, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to have dinner, I'll probably get to bed at this time. We had our schedules wiped in there. So our only choice and option was to trust. Just trust in what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. Trust in the minute. And like I said, you could be one minute you're laying down, the next minute you're outside doing burpees in the freezing cold. So one thing I took from it was I would wake up every day before I went there and my schedule would run through my head the minute I opened my eyes and we'd probably all do this and you're like, right, I'm going to wake up, go to there, go to work, do that meeting, but oh, I'm going to get into bed at nine o'clock tonight. And we wish our day away. Mm. Like, how often do we wake up and go, I can't wait to get back into bed tonight, I'm so tired. And you almost say, like, I'm going to get through the day. Yeah. And you do. You, I, I used to do it a lot before I see her. So I'd wake up in the morning, the first thought would be, can't wait to get back into bed. I'm so tired. Get through it. And you reel off your schedule. Since coming back from there, I wake up and whatever is in front of me in that minute is in front of me. So like, if I'm brushing my teeth, I'm brushing my teeth. It does not matter that I'm going to get the train at nine o'clock because I'm going to get it. Mm. It does not matter if I've got dinner plans at 6pm because 6pm is going to come along, hopefully, because it might not. But in, you know, ordinary circumstances, six o'clock's coming. So why worry? I used to always as well, say I was here with you, but I knew I had a big meeting later. I'd be here with you, but thinking of the meeting. Mm. I don't do that anymore. So I think one of the biggest things I learned in there was to truly live in the minute and delete my schedule mentally because my schedule's there. Mm. I don't have to think. My schedule's yeah. written down. So why am I thinking about my schedule in my day mm. it's there and I guess you didn't have that option because what no. I'm thinking when you're saying that is about control so mm. a lot of it for me you know I like to plan I like to go okay I'm going to do this as you said do that we all have a schedule whatever that looks like yeah. but for me I think the element of the unknown when you said about feeling anxious that that's what would make you feel anxious because you don't know as you said when you're going to eat or you know and that as you said about us being spoiled we are we live yeah. in this abundance you know it's like if you're hungry grab a snack yeah. take something in your bag you know if you don't want to cook get that delivery you know you can get 24 hours 
yeah. food and even even down to the basic things like you know I was talking to my son the other day around you know food waste and trying to encourage you know him to think deeper not just say to him don't waste food like yeah. what does that mean understand so, yeah. food waste yeah and I kind of gave him this example which I thought was really powerful around a carrot and it sounds basic but I basically said to him okay if we cook say for example 10 carrots and you don't eat them all and you put them in the bin or you put one in the bin just one let's think about how long it took if I said to you can you go and you know grow another carrot so it's mm. like you might plant the thing you might water the soil you've got to wait for the sun the sun's yeah. got to grow da, 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 da. Month. it might be however long and then you get that one carrot you're going to wash it you're going to peel it you're going to prep it and then I'm just going to throw it in the bin yeah. you know it's like that thing of like look at all the energy the water the thing yeah. that's taken to create something but now even when it comes to things like baking bread making a cake back in the day it might take you half an hour you know do the thing knead the bread put it in the fridge do the yeah. thing. now it's like instant 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 just grab it off the shelf if it go, if, it, if you don't eat it chuck it in the bin yeah. you know so I think I'm going off on a tangent now no food waste. it's a metaphor random. the carrot is a metaphor yeah random but I think my point is that it's this element of a, we know we can get things really quickly, really instantly. It's like this, um, you know, really fast culture, fast, fast, yeah. fast, throw away. Secondly, it's that thing of control, knowing that you can always get it. So I think that's what would freak me out as somebody who eats a lot when you were saying <laughs> you don't know when they're going to feed you. Like, hmm, that would freak thing. me out yeah, because yeah. I know I'd be thinking, like, I'm hung- okay, there's hunger, yeah. then there's hunger, and then, then there's, there's needing I'm it. feeling ill. Yeah. yeah, and I think I would really struggle with the idea that, okay, sleep deprivation, I'm a parent. I feel mm. like mm, maybe, you know, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it gets you and I'm sure you suffer. But yeah, the physical training, not knowing what's coming, mm. not knowing as well. I mean, these things weren't optional, right? You can't opt out. No. So, yeah, yeah, I mean. You just, yeah, in terms of that, if you go, you go. You make that choice, you go and you leave and you go home. And other than that, you do everything. That's your option. Go home. So the option out is to kind of surrender and say, number. you hand in the number and it's not like a failure, but essentially it's you saying, I'm done. I'm I've done. hit my breaking point. And did you think about handing in that number? To be honest with you, no. And the the, the main thing for me about that, um, and it, it it's a shame that really you can't watch my journey on there because obviously it is a TV show and, you know, it's edited to show like, you know, everybody says there's a lot of us in there and things like that. And my journey was, you know, pretty quiet. I did get very far through the process. Um, however, in terms of that, in terms of the TV show, for me, it was my journey and I, you know, I really loved the journey I had. And my point of going on there as well was I wanted to be broken. And it sounds, again, sadistic, but I don't know my breaking point and it is quite alarming. And I'll tell you a story, um, what happened recently, where it did get alarming outside of SAS, but I don't know my breaking point. I got sent home. And the reason I got sent home was because, um, just in case anyone hasn't watched the show, um, you're carrying a Bergen on your back, massive rucksack. It's 23 kilos um, all the time. I am five foot one and I weighed 50 kilos in there. So we're talking nearly half my body weight on my back. There was nine of us left and I'm going to the tallest person, six foot four, 100 kilos, carrying 23 kilos on his back. So it's all about equality, understand. But when we go through like ratio and getting scientific with it, when Aunt Middleton says, Esme, James, race to the top of that mountain, you've got a six foot four guy, 100 kilos with 23 kilos in his back racing a five foot one, you know, in terms of my mental state, I was 100. I was 100. In terms of physicality, there's no way I was going to beat him up there scientifically. I'm carrying half a body weight, he's carrying a quarter. Mm. And that's where it came down to, yeah. unfortunately for me, was I was the last one to the top of the mountain. And the saddest thing about it is I, I was given my everything mm. and if it was based on effort 
and you know how hard you were trying and what you were going through to get there, I would have been at the front. Mm. You know, if we could base it on that. Um, so for me, I feel like my journey on SAS. I didn't get to my breaking point. I didn't get to the point where I was like, I'm done. You're going to quit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so it left me leaving there going, I still don't know it. Mm. So that was the sort of devastating thing for me because, you know, science yeah, played a physical, part. Yeah, physical, yeah, it was a physical It thing. played a massive part in it because yeah. I got to day nine from just, you know, my mental state because mm. I was the smallest and I mean the smallest. Yeah. Like, I have and carried an 85 kilo man. Like I did everything I was told to do. I never once quit. So for me, it was really hard. It was a hard blow to take, mm. you know, really hard in that moment when he sent me home because I thought, I've done everything to keep up with them and I still got to the top of the mountain. Yeah, but that's why you can be proud of me because you fought yeah. to the end. You know, you didn't quit. Your mind was strong. Your body was strong. You did everything they asked of you. And as you said, you know, it is what it is. Mm. But you know, you can be proud that you gave your 100. You know, yeah, you don't have to sure. go away and think, oh, you know what? I wish I'd done more. You yeah. did it. And that's where like your ego does like completely like just put, get, you put your ego to the side. Like for me, people watching a TV show and you're seeing all these people talking about other people. Oh my God, they're so amazing. They're so strong. They're so this. And for me, you lose your ego with it all. You're just like, I know my story. I know what happened in there um, for me. And I felt good about my journey. And in a way, I'm kind of glad it wasn't showcased like how they wanted to showcase it because I knew my story. Mm -hmm. And that was nice for me to be able to keep that as like my truth. Yeah. So yeah. it was good. Well, you were amazing. And I think anybody Thank who watches you. those shows, it's so, you know, you can't even imagine, as you said, you're at home, you're comfortable. I know. You know, you're on your sofa, you might have a little snack. You can watch it and go, wow, that looks hard. No yeah. idea. You know, I've got other I friends did that. have done it, you yeah. know, and it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So now, you know, there's no stopping you. You'd feel like, you know, you've, you've had to face so many things. <laughs> Why aren't you just going to put your feet up, you know, chill out? But you're doing ultra marathons. Yeah. So was that kind of a part of this? You know, I want to know my breaking point. How did you, why did you say, right, okay, the next challenge is going to be an endurance race? So for me, I only realise more recently why I've been doing these crazy, stupid challenges. At the time when I was doing them, I was saying yes to them and then people were asking, why do you do it? And I just kind of just answer like very vaguely, like I hadn't really thought about it. And then I came to the realisation, I was um, speaking to someone and they asked and it genuinely came out of my mouth and I just said, because I can. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I was like, like, is that it? You can do anything? And I said exactly that. Like, I can do it. And until it gets to the day that someone offers me a challenge, an opportunity that I have to say no, I will say yes. Because the saddest thing is, this is the saddest thing about it, and it's the truth, one day we're going to have to say no. And we're going to have to say no to the things that were actually on our doorstep and then, you know, on our fingertips. And we're going to look back and we're going to be like, oh, my God, I could have done that 10 times over and now I can't even do it once. And that's where one part of my motivation comes from. I know what it's like to not be able to do something, so why the hell would I say no? And if someone says, do you want to run a marathon? Not really, but, yeah, I can, so why would I not? And that's where the sort of marathon started for me was I got offered a marathon spot by Twice the Health Girls. They said, will you join our team and run the marathon? I sat on the sofa, I looked at it, and I thought, you can. It's going to be horrendous. I hadn't run for six years after being paralysed because I had a problem with uh, one of my legs. It used to just go dead while I was running. So I gave up on running for six years, and I loved running before. And I thought, yeah, I've been running, I think, for six months, and they asked me if I wanted to run a marathon, which was in about eight months' time. And I just remember, no, it wasn't. It was in four months. It was in December. Marathon's April. And I remember looking at my phone and I just put, yeah. I try. I actually, do you know what the worst thing is? I actually tried to find a reason, an excuse to say no to them. 
I sat thinking, right, what could I say? I could say like, oh, I've only been running for six months since I, you know, was paralysed, so probably not. Or maybe I'll say like, oh, you know, April's a busy month for me in terms of... There was no reason for me not to do it. So that's where it came from. Um, this is the most important thing. There are people out there that can't. Right now, there are people listening to this right now who can't do something. So do it for them. I have people in my life that can't. My brother's not very well. He has heart problems. There are a million things that he wishes he could do that he can't. So why would I not? Um, so my motivation comes from others, being able to do it for them. Um, but, yeah, mainly, if you can say yes to it... Mm. Just say it. Just say it. Because one day, and it hurts me even to say it now, we're going to have to say no. Both of us sitting there, yep. anyone listening. And it could be circumstance, injury, age. Like, one day we're going to have to say no, and it's going to hurt. Yep. So bad. Yep. I I'm hear you. I hear you. And today, I've said this before, as you just said, one day you won't be able to, but today is not that yeah. day. So don't put it off as well. Because the other yeah. thing is people go, oh, well, I will. Next year. Yeah, tomorrow. next year. It or is like, next oh, year. Yeah, or not, not today <laughs> yeah. or tomorrow. You know, I'm busy. Yeah. And like you said, it's kind of like one day, It's if you can... Yeah, do it. You're not going to regret it. You're probably going to learn loads. You're going to have, you know, but you know, all the things that we talk about. You know, like the experience, meeting new people, motivating others. Yeah. I think you don't even need to figure out initially why. Yeah, just start. Yeah, and it's like one of the biggest like things that I have learned is nobody can do everything, but everyone can do something, and it's like anyone sitting listening to this right now, there is something you can do. You can't do everything. But there is something you can do. You might not be able to climb a mountain, but you can go for a walk. You might not be able to run a marathon right now, but you can start with 5K. You know, mm. and it's it's that concept of there's too many people sitting there putting other people on a pedestal and watching them do it saying, yeah, but... Mm. Don't underestimate. Yeah, but, yeah don't yeah. underestimate yourself. And that is the biggest thing for me. Stop yeah, butting people. So, Tony, as I mentioned in my intro about being anti-desk, anti-chair, anti-shoes, <laughs> let's talk about that because, you know, I think it's super interesting, so relevant right now, the amount of people in my world that are telling me that they have had to order a new desk or a new chair or a footstool or this because they've got, you know, they're spending lots of time now on Zoom calls, emails, all these different things, and they're sitting for hours mm -hmm. in the chair. And therefore, even people who are, you know, early 20s, they're saying I've got neck pain, back pain, hip pain, you know, pain as if they're in their 80s and they're immobile. So how how can yeah what can we do and why should we be ditching the chair and ditching the desk? Uh, it's that very same language of normalised, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I used to have a Pilates studio. And so Pilates really has been associated with posture and mechanical low back pain and rehab and postural rehab. And, and its roots, its origins are incredible. Understanding Joseph Pilates' original work, um, who was a gymnast, middleweight professional boxer, worked in a circus, um, but opened up his first practice above the New York City Ballet. So most of the um, clients he'd see were dancers or ex-dancers. Very different to what would be a, uh, the average person, let's say. So my studio, again, was it started off, I was teaching one-to-ones, and then I went into a larger studio and had six practitioners working for me, hundreds of clients, in and out the door, large classes, one-to-ones. And most of the clients would probably drive to the session, um, park their car up, enter the gym, um, come into the studio, and then take off their footwear and leave their footwear at the door, then come in, get on the Reformer or the Cadillac or the Wunderchair or on the mat, and try and unravel the eels 
of their environment, right? So their normalized behaviors, they're suffering from symptoms from their normalized behaviors, and they're in there to try and unravel it. Symptom relief, basically. Um, so then I used to see, right, okay, what are the common things that I would see? And it was usually neck, knee injuries, lower back, necks. And then you start thinking, well, it's incredible. Why, why is this? Right? The knee joint is an incredible shock absorber. You can cope with like 500 pounds of pressure. Why is it? If we, believe, if we understand evolution and, you know, we started off with like 2,000 sapiens, how do we get to this huge number if we're all so fragile, right? <laughs> and then you could just see it was just the footwear they were turning up in was compromising, really narrow in the toe box, complete opposite to the human foot. What's the next instance? Oh, it's sitting, right? They're all sitting in chairs and there are no chairs in nature, but people in nature are just a sedentary. Uh, okay, so how does that work then? Okay, so we looked at studies with the Hadza and uh, this tribe in particular, a hunting tribe, they've got the same behavior they've had for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so what is it they do differently? Okay, they, they live on the ground. Wow, how do they live on the ground? Well, there's, there's a multiple rest positions that we can choose on the ground that help feed and nourish our upright posture. Um, and there's no physios, osteopaths, Pilates studios, or yoga practitioners, practitioners in nature, yet they have this incredible physiology and ability to move, right? So I could then start to apply that and think, wow, okay, so no chairs and no footwear. Um, so they're the things, right, so what do I do? Do I, keep, do I keep dealing with symptom relief and coaching people in symptom relief or do I go to the cause? And so for me, it was then just, I closed up the studio basically. We, we, just, we decided to open up a practice with two other friends. It had a natural movement philosophy within it. And in amongst that, we were coaching people how to move naturally. So part of that underneath it, if I unravel it, um, I had, I had, we had kids, we had our first daughter, Lola. Um, we then looked at, okay, what's happening with her? Because if we're putting her in high chairs and car seats and stuff like that, I'm just, I'm, I'm basically just putting those templates in that I'm, that I'm trying to deal with the symptom relief within my studio. So eventually when Millie was our second daughter, I'm like, okay, we just need to, we need to basically take the chairs, the sofas away and let's, let's exist as a ground living family. And to others that are like socially extreme language was coming in. But then when you start to explain, well, actually, you know, if I'm dealing with mechanical low back pain all day with people and I remove the chair from their environment, they suddenly become very mobile in the hips again and mobile in the mid back and the areas that are vulnerable through sitting become more stable. And then if I then look to how it works in nature, because my work is always about, you know, looking to the, the natural beings and natural places of the world to find ways that are more in sync with human biology. You can see again, the running people or the natural movers of the world, they simply don't have chairs, they don't wear footwear. And with running, for instance, like for me to run from Land's End to John O'Groats barefoot, and get up every day and run 30 miles every single day for 30 days. Um, I, I put that down to having a ground living practice and not compromising my feet. So it meant that every day I'm ready. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think it's absolutely fascinating what you say around, to me, it describes like this domino effect. People with back pain, you know, they prob probably don't think about 
their feet or their big toe or their shoes. And, and actually also what you said about children and watching and observing your, your daughters when they were young moving. And, you know, it's interesting because I kind of thought as you were talking as a parent of an eight-year-old boy, you know, how many times do you hear parents say, sit up at the table or sit properly or put your legs down yeah. or stop fidgeting or sit this way, sit that way. I hear people say it even, you know, when you're on the train or, you know, when we used to use trains, but when you're on the train or in the cinema oh. or wherever, where people say to their children, you know, sit up nicely, sit properly, put your legs. And it's interesting because if you watch them, I think the reason obviously that they move and fidget and the, you know, children know how to move their bodies. They know how to be comfortable. And as you said, if you take them and give them the free reign to you know, go and read a book, go and write something, go and create something, do it however you want. They'll probably naturally go to the floor. They'll take their book to the floor or their paper crayons, whatever. They'll move around. They might lie on their tummy. They might sit on, you know, one one knee. They might squat. And actually, it's interesting, isn't it, how naturally innately we do that as children. And then as we grow up and as we get used to, you know, sit up straight, sit on the chair, put your legs down, sit properly. Yeah. You start to condition yourself because you have to, you have to sit down at school, you have to sit in your car. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, when you scrap those things, you know, in prep for this episode, I was thinking about it yesterday and I had my laptop on the floor and I was writing and I was moving and I found I was moving around every three to four minutes, as opposed to in your chair, you can probably sit for hours without moving. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, yeah, you hit nail on the head with schooling. I think it, it comes in, in that level, doesn't it? Because up until school, we, we play. We just play, play, play. We play it being whatever it is. You know, we play with being on the ground and we move from one rest position to the other, but we do it so smoothly and beautifully. It's almost um, un the unseen by the parent. And every single little motor school milestone, like my, my son is only seven months now, so every little motor school milestone, I'm so open to absorbing it. It's like, oh my God, did you see that? And you get to see him unraveling and he's trying to get to a very important rest position, which we know as the squat, but not as the squat we know as an exercise. The squat is simply a rest position and it's a position that you just drift in and out of. And that ultimately is the, it's like the macro skill and all the other little rest positions are like micro skills to get to that macro state. Because from there, guess what? We can stand up. And that's how we then, from standing, we can learn to walk, we can run, we can jump, we can lift, we can carry, we can balance. We can do all these amazing things. But if you remove the squat and you remove all the ground rest positions, you compromise that macro state of standing, walking, running, jumping, all of those. And what does the chair do? Of course, it removes all those lovely ground rest positions that led us to having that beautiful posture. And when you see kids in a squat, it looks so amazing. When you see them stand up, they have amazing posture. Yeah. Again, children up to a certain age, they don't need Pilates, they don't need yoga, they don't need postural work. So what is it? And then we can say, right, okay, when I enter a classroom or that particular age, those hours, of, those endless hours of play, practicing and exploring my own physicality are removed. And I'm left to put in 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 a chair, and I'm also told to be quiet, right? So sit still. That's the thing. Sit, sit, still, sit still. Not to run. Don't run in corridors, right? So then, what happens is then the play is designated to an hour that is usually on a playground, some concrete, right? And then that play is then removed, and it turns into a full-on lunch break, and you have to get back to the session, and your play is turned into something very serious, and it's called physical education. And physical education isn't aligned with the exploration of your full physicality because it's very specialized. And then you go from there and then you're told to sit down and be quiet again. So unfortunately, unless 
unless if there's parents out there now unless you are a parent where you're going to get your child out into nature and explore their own physicality then then they're going to end up in a pilates studio or a yoga practice or a physio somewhere along the line when they're older Hmm. so if it's anyone out there that's looking to go back to work right now you don't have a responsibility in the workplace more often than not you might have to sit for hours upon end but the key would be for me is to get people back um, to the ground and to offset your chair sitting um, and when you're at home think right in the home environment I have four responsibilities so how do I make my home environment incredibly nourishing how do I get those physical social spiritual needs met in my home environment because that's the place I can have control over and responsibility over and I can turn my home environment from a position of survival and surviving into a position of growth promoting so I can thrive. What I'm finding is that although people, a lot more people know about meditation and mindfulness as these words, it's quite intimidating for a lot of people to get involved with because I think when people think of meditation, they think of, you know, the monk in the monastery um, and mindfulness. I think a lot of people think of like, oh, does that mean I have to pay attention to every single thing that I do every single moment of every single day, you know, and it can be a bit intimidating for a lot of people. But what's interesting about breath work is that it seems to be very approachable and that just the idea that you're breathing can change your state of being is not that far-fetched you know a lot of people recognize like i do a lot of corporate work for example and i always will start and be like okay when when you're feeling stressed or anxious do you notice that your breathing changes and 99 percent of the room will put their hand up so people know that their breathing uh, has something to do with their state of being, how they're thinking, how they're feeling. So it only makes sense then that they go, maybe I can use the breath as a tool to affect me positively and actually make changes. So, you know, I think once people get past the idea of, but don't I just breathe? And they actually just go one step further and think about it a little bit. It makes a lot of sense. And they go, oh yeah, I guess, I guess that makes sense that my breathing would affect me in some way. Um, and then they get to experience it and then, you know, game over, mm. they're in it. And what a beautiful thing to be into because, you know, you don't have to take a magic pill, magic potion. You don't have to, you know, be a vegan. You don't have to go and become, do your yoga teacher training. You know, you can be any Joe Blow off the street and say, hey, follow these steps to use your breath. And then you have a tool for life. Mm. And that's there for them to benefit from. So I think, yeah, I think... I mean, I see so many people, especially now because of what's happening in the world, who are so interested in managing um, not only their state of the state of being, like stress or anxiety, but also taking the moment and starting to recognize, you know what, maybe I have some stuff that I need to actually work on, you know, whereas before it was very easy to distract themselves, right? Um, now I think this moment has forced a lot of people to actually look at themselves and go, man... There's some things that I think that if I could get a handle on, 
I think life would be a lot better.、Mm-hmm. And then they start searching for ways in, and breath works a very easy way in. Yes. Well, there's two things I want to I want to say there. One was about when you said the steps. It's like step one, step two, step three. For somebody like me, Richie, I'm very practical. I'm very analytical. I like steps. I like to see. Things that you can track, progress, data. I'm just a data person. So the idea when you said about people think meditation is like the monk and all that, for me, I was always quite resistant to yeah meditation. I was like, oh, you know, things that are slow and quiet and just sedentary and like that's not the natural state that I enjoy. I like to move. I like to make noise. I like you know. For me, I was like, it felt like a punishment. The idea that you have to sit quietly、it、reminded me of school. You know,、yeah. cross your legs, sit up straight, and. Close, you know, be quiet. That's what I felt the meditation was. So I never really vibe with it. And I think the thing I like about breathwork so much is because I'm such a doer. Even in this, I feel like yeah, it's instructional. So when I listen to、um, your breathwork classes and I have my headphones on, it's like you're telling me, you know, breathe in, hold your breath, breathe out, breathe in. You know, and there's fast breaths and there's slow breaths, and I'm still. Actively engage in a way, but then only for the first few minutes, because then I'm just so into it that then I'm able to switch off. Then I'm able to whether you call it meditate, relax, like zone out, whatever you want to call it. It's the steps that I'm following that allow me to get there. Because if I just close my eyes and sit cross-legged or whatever people think you have to do, I just think I'm like I need to do this. I need to send that email. I need to do this thing. So I think for people that struggle to kind of do nothing,、mm-hmm. breathwork is a great thing to do. It sneaks up on you, doesn't it? And you're so right. You know, I think for a lot of people who find, let's say, meditation like something that feels very foreign or challenging, you know what? It it is foreign. It is it is challenging.、Um, and getting a handle on your mind using your mind is kind of tricky, right?、Um, whereas breath works so great because you're using the body to make changes in your mind. So it's like you're you're actually doing something. You're engaged in an activity.、Um, In order to make physical changes to what's happening inside of you, and those physical changes will actually turn off your brain in certain parts. It actually will downregulate certain parts of the brain that are involved in that monkey chatter, that thinking about what you need to do or what happened yesterday. That part of the brain actually turns down in activity, and other parts start to turn up. But that's why it's like you are involved for the, like you said, for the first few minutes, and you're. You're、um, thinking about the breath. You're feeling the sensation through the body, and then eventually, it all just kind of starts to fade into the background, and then you just are. And、um, you know, I have the amount of people who will be say, I, "I just can't meditate," but this is something I can hold on to. You know, it's 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 really outstanding. Absolutely. So, if you're listening to this and you are one of those people, then I absolutely encourage you to give it a try. Now I know that you have had,、um, you've also been a guest on Dr. Rupi Ordula's podcast, and I'm a big fan of, of Rupi. He's been on this show before, and I know that other doctors like Dr. Andrew Wheel, who I also am a big fan of, you know, they are, I guess, champions within the, you know, the medical profession of, you know, all these different ways to heal the body and apply, you know, food as medicine and all these different things. So, how do you think breathwork is viewed by the science and medical community? Hmm. I think it, it. I think it varies, and I think you find more and more that people are、uh, getting on board, understanding it, because the science as to what happens when we breathe in certain ways is really starting to get filled out now with various research and papers being published.、Um, whereas maybe ten years ago there was a lot less of that, and I think. In some way, you know, yoga is really leading the charge in that. Like I, you know, I don't know. For example, I have a good friend of mine who represents yoga and、um, goes into parliament and talks about how to implement yoga in the NHS and that kind of thing. So, so 
when people start to see that, then they start to open their minds a little bit more to, okay, maybe there are other things as well. And, you know, breathwork is so closely linked to yoga in many ways that people kind of just, you know, put them together in the same bag. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's funny you mentioned Rupi. I think I mentioned this on his podcast recently. You know, I have so much respect for particularly, let's say, front the frontline doctors who are just seeing people day in, day out, you know, at least I remember in Australia, you know, like the, the consultation times are like six minutes, you know. So you're just, you know, just, you know, cycling through people. And I work with people. I know what that feels like to be having to work with that many people every day, day in, day out. Like, it's, a, it's, it's almost to me seems a little bit unreasonable to expect them to be like, and now I'm going to do more research on other things that are maybe a bit outside of my scope of work, you know, because they're just so involved in what they do already. Um, and I think it's people like Rupee who can really lead the charge in uh, championing these ideas around you know, nutrition, obviously, is the big one for him. Um, you know, there's Dr. Rongan Chatterjee as well, who's bringing in all sorts of aspects of things, whether it's sleep, exercise, movement, uh, pieces around mental health as well, breath work. Um, you know, to, to kind of bring it back. I think it's I think it's coming. You know, I've been invited to a lot of hospitals in the in London to work with the staff around how to use their breath and what I think is particular like think about all the patients who are just sitting in their beds with not much to do. Why don't they have some sort of guided experience or even just a booklet or some just posters around being like, "Hey, try this breathing exercise because you know what? It can actually promote healing." It can actually help you to feel more calm and more present and not to think about the situation that you're in. Um, it only makes sense that these simple things that are actually completely free, uh, that can make huge differences in people's lives or, in this case, people's recovery, um, should be implemented. So I do hope at some point that, you know, it's one of my visions actually to see, you know, the importance of breathing taught at schools, you know, taught in any, at any, you know, public health um, institution as a first point of call for GPs to look at how people breathe as the first thing they look at, regardless of whatever it is, symptoms that they're exhibiting, because that can make such a huge difference. Mm, Yeah. And I think, you know, how our breath changes, even if we're not thinking about it, conscious of it, you know, how it's impacted by our emotion, even if you just think about you know, when people gasp, you know, it's like you're mm. shocked or when you're maybe really relaxed before you fall asleep and you're breathing more slowly. Or, or as you said, if you're in chronic pain or, you know, I think there's all these things which maybe before it was quite viewed as quite woo woo and like, you know, oh, that sounds good. But actually, I need something that's actually going to heal me and I yeah. need something that's actually going to, you know, I think that kind of diff- the divide between, you know, the science and the nature. I do think the the gap is starting to draw closer and as you said with people like Rupi and, and Dr. Chatterjee and other people like that I think championing this idea that oh he's a qualified doctor he actually is a GP it's not you know someone who they assume you know knows nothing about science and is just you know barefoot in the, in the woods you know I think there's kind That's of that it. good combination of, of both. To have these like people who have been on the front line working with people and having that experience then saying hey you know what I think this is really important just really adds weight to, to, to what they're trying what they're teaching and what they're sharing twenty twenty has been i mean 
an insane year for most people. And I think lockdown has meant that for a lot of people, they've had to change their daily routines. So most people right now here in London anyway, they might be working from home. They are probably working out at home. They could be homeschooling their kids. Everything's changed for them. So they no longer have the same points throughout their day. Maybe they don't commute anymore. Maybe they don't have one hour lunch break at a set time with their colleagues. So I think for some people, they've used this time as an opportunity to create a whole new habit. They've created a new daily routine. And I recently delivered a talk. It was a virtual keynote. And the Q&A at the end, the questions that were coming up the most were actually, if people have created a new habit around daily movement around exercise they were kind of thinking well when my new when my other responsibilities of life come back how am I going to be able to continue with this routine so they've they've created new habits during this period and now they want to know that when how they can keep that going when the demands on their schedule and life changes do you have any advice for them yeah there you know anytime the environment changes in a big way behavior changes in a big way and a lot of people have changed their environment in very significant ways this year. You know, it used to be that you went into the office, but now your kitchen table is your office. Or, um, you know, it used to be that you had some separation from the items that were in your pantry, but now you can walk around the corner and snack all day long. And so uh, it's easy to imagine that if, well, let me, let me say this too. This is, I think is important. Often when we define what a habit is, usually people will bring up definitions like, oh, it's a behavior that you do automatically or mindlessly or, you know, something quick and and automatic. But a different definition of a habit and one that I like to use a lot is they are uh, behaviors that are tied to a particular context or tied to a particular environment. And so there is no behavior outside of an environment. They all happen in some type of context. And so if the context changes, the habits change too. And uh, you should, I think, one helpful thing to do as we kind of go through this and it becomes more of a new normal to work at home or to, you know, deal with a variety of different changes due to coronavirus, um, to ask yourself, what is the obvious choice in this new environment? What is the easier, attractive choice in this new environment? And can I redesign things to make the good habits the more obvious, available, visible, easy to see thing, the path of least resistance? And if you look around your your home and office, you may find that uh, the habits that are the path of least resistance right now are not the ones that serve you the most. And so you can make some changes to try to improve that. One example I like to give is, you know, a lot of people feel like they too, watch too much television, but walk into any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Right? It's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? Um, and so there are a spectrum of choices you can make there. Uh, you know, you could take the TV and put it inside a wall unit or a cabinet. So it's behind doors and you're less likely to see it. Or you could unplug the TV after each use and only plug it back in. If you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you can't just like turn it on mindlessly and find something. You could um, take the remote control and put it inside a drawer and put a book in its place. And individually choices like that aren't going to make a radical difference. But collectively, if you make a dozen or two dozen or 50 little choices like that, that all make the good habit, the path of least resistance, suddenly it's much easier to do the healthy and productive thing. And so I think as, you know, things have shifted during this time and as we find ourselves in new environments, we need to keep asking ourselves, what is the obvious choice in this environment? Is it the healthy thing? Is the productive thing? Is it the thing I want? Um, Another small example, I wanted to start reading more consistently And uh, I knew I was going to be at home more since we're quarantined, lockdown and everything else. 
And so uh, I started buying physical books and sprinkling them around the house. Like I've got five on the desk next to me here. I have a couple by the bed, a couple on the coffee table, whatever. And then um, on my phone, I moved all of my apps to the second screen and I took Audible and I put it on the home screen so that it'd be the first thing I see when I open up the phone just to remind me to listen to, to another audiobook. So those are small choices, but again, they try to make the good habit the path of least resistance. And so the more that you can do that with your physical and digital spaces, uh, I think the more you'll find that these habits are able to stick um, as we move forward and, you know, kind of reenter society and get into some kind of new normal, whatever that may look like. Yeah, well, there's two things I was thinking then when you were talking, James, I didn't want to interrupt you. One was about Audible because I'm such an Audible fan and I listen to hours and hours of books and also podcasts every day. And sometimes people will say to me, they're like, how do you listen to so many books and so many podcast episodes every time I tell you about that you've listened to it already? And I always say to people about that, the small habit. So I also have it on the home screen, but I made it a habit to listen to Audible basically if I'm like, even if I think it's going to be three minutes, because often it Mm. ends up being more. So it might just be, yeah, like sitting in an Uber and you think you're five minutes away, listen for five minutes. Or if I'm cooking or if I'm walking to pick up my son from school, like those short moments where you think oh it's only five minutes often people say to me oh I don't have an hour to listen to this book but I say to them I'm like well maybe you have seven minutes and 12 minutes and 15 and actually throughout the day you probably listen I probably listen to two hours in all these different moments so I think the prompt is really good and then the second thing when you mentioned about like covering the tv or, or moving things around I think Often it's easy for people to hear advice like that and kind of go, oh, yeah, okay." But actually doing it and trying something out for a week or two, I think is so powerful. And and I have, as I mentioned, a young son. And I know when you were talking then, I was thinking of him. And I know that if he walks in and sees the Nintendo Switch, it's just, you know, over on the side, he's going to, his eye will be drawn to it straight away. It's like that question, can I go on my Switch? What can I play? But as you say, if when he finishes playing with it, it's like, okay, you've played on that, pack it away, take the plug, put it in the box, put it in the cupboard it's like a whole day before he's going to get it out and go on it again. So I think for parents yep. listening, especially if you're at home and your children are at home more, I think that's, yeah, I think a really good thing to just at least try, not just listen and kind of go, oh, sounds good. Actually implement it this week and see if it makes a difference. Yeah, something to add there. I think those are great points. Um, it's surprising how much you can uh, curtail or reduce a habit just by making it less obvious like that. Like I one of the putting the video game console away is a, a great example. Um, another one that I have used recently is I try to leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And if I have it next to me, I'm like everybody else. I will check it every three minutes, right? Like it's just right there. But if I leave it in another room, I have a home office. And so I'm only 30 seconds away, but I never go get it. And it's always surprising to me because it's like, well, did I want it or not? Like in the one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes when it was next to me. But in another sense, I never go work to go get it. It's never worth 30 seconds of of effort. And so it's kind of like a lot of our bad habits are actually just things we do when we're bored. They're like the default that we go to when we have a free moment. And so changing the environment in a little way, making it less obvious, you'll often see that reduce. And that actually leads into what I thought was a great example from you about your kind of default behavior of listening to Audible. I think the question to ask yourself is, what do I do when I have nothing to do? And so all those in-between moments where people just check their phone for three minutes instead of pressing play on Audible, or they, you know, are in a line for seven minutes and they're just kind of waiting uh, for the next thing to happen. A lot of that time gets wasted throughout the day and we don't realize how much of it, like you said, accumulates into, you know, an hour or two of listening. And 
I think the key is to have, it just has to be one thing, but one good default that you always go to when you have nothing else to do. Um, for me recently, it's become working on my next book. I you know, have this manuscript I need to work on. If I ever don't know what to do, I just work on that. If I have nothing to do, I just open that up. And um, it's surprising how much that can accumulate over time as your kind of audible and uh, reading experience shows as well. Yeah, absolutely. James, I'm fascinated when you're talking. I'm just like nodding my head along thinking that this is so great and I could talk to you all day. So as an expert on this topic, I guess before I move on to talking to you about the Power Hour, I want to know, I mean, you mentioned, I guess, a few throughout, but I want to know which three atomic habits you have, because I know that you're intentional about your habits. So which three like kind of habits would you say are the the ones that you are intentional about the most every single day, you repeat them the most and why? Yeah. Uh, so I'll, yeah, I'll give you three. So, uh, the first one is related to health. So this is exercise is kind of like my keystone habit in the sense, And I, for me, it's strength training. Um, and if I do that, then I know that the, the rest of my day kind of falls into place. Like it sort of has this ripple effect where, yeah, I get the benefits of working out, but also I tend to have an hour where I kind of have this like post-workout high where you're thinking very clearly, Um, I tend to eat better when I'm working out. If I don't work out, then I kind of like devolve into a slob everywhere. But if I'm working out, then it's like, I don't want to waste it. And I tend to eat better. Um, if I train hard, then I sleep better that night, which means the next day I wake up with better energy. So it just kind of influences a lot of areas. So that's, that's definitely one. And for me, it has become as simple as if I don't have any time, like I did this a lot, uh, the year I launched atomic habits because I, I was just very tight on time. If I couldn't get a full workout in, then I would at least go and I would squat and I would just do one exercise, but at least I did that. And, um, I've had quite a few workouts that have been like that, but I have to get under the bar. I got to do something. So that's, that's one. The, the second one, this one's more work related is reading. Um, for a long time, I thought, Oh, if I really want my writing to be good, I need to just write more. I need to spend more hours on it. I need to push harder, but actually pretty much every good idea that I have is sparked by reading something interesting. And so if I ever don't feel like I have the energy to write, what I actually need to do is read, uh, because that will like give me the, the inspiration and get me going again. So I already mentioned trying to leave books around the house and audible and so on, but I try to do a variety of things to make reading really easy in the environments that I'm in so that I always sort of have this next burst of inspiration coming. Um, and then the third one is one that has been good for me, but that I've also struggled with. So I'll explain both sides of that. Um, I have this kind of cardinal rule where I don't cheat myself on sleep. And so that's been really essential. I I make sure that I sleep, I would say at least eight hours every night, um, particularly if I'm training heavy and um, I'm good about that. I'm good about getting enough sleep. The part that I struggle with is getting to bed on time. So I'll often get this kind of second wind where around like say nine or 10 PM, I'm like, well, maybe I'll just check email for a minute or send a few off or, you know, do a little bit of work. And of course it's never just a few emails, right? It's like you turn around, it's midnight or 1am or something. You're still working. And you know, if it's 1am and I'm going to get eight hours of sleep, I'm not waking up till nine. And I know that I do much better when I wake up early. And so there's this constant tension between making sure I get in bed by say 10 um, and getting up early versus, uh, going to bed too late. So anyway, but those are three big ones for me. And I know that if I get those three, right, if I'm sleeping well, I'm training consistently and I'm reading consistently, a lot of good things kind of flow from that. And so those sort of, I would call those more foundational habits for me. They're things that kind of set the stage for me to do good work and show up in a good way. 
I remember just falling in love with the sport, but it didn't come without its challenges. I mean, from I used to. I used to cry every single night that I went away on training camps. I used to hate it. I used to hate being away from my family. Um, I used to cry when I had to learn new dives because I was terrified. I, it, you know, I love diving, but at the same time, it absolutely terrifies me. And still to this day, I get terrified when I stand on the end of that diving board. But I mean, it was tough to manage the grueling training schedule on top of doing uh, school and getting ready for GCSEs. I mean, when I was in year eight, I went to my first Olympics um, in Beijing. I qualified when I was 13. So then that came with its own challenges at school and people not understanding what I was doing and how successful I had gotten really quickly. Um, but, you know, it was all the whole big picture was London 2012. At the age of nine, I had a medal book where every competition that I went to, I drew around the medal and wrote what the competition was, where it was, what place I finished and how I felt I competed. So I did that with every single medal that I won for the first few years. And in the front of that book, I drew a picture of me doing a handstand with the Olympic rings and said London 2012. So, you know, that visualization of like, I know that this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I want to do more than anything in the world. And, you know, I think this is so powerful to have visualization of your goals and knowing where you want to be and knowing that each day is just a little stepping stone towards that ultimate dream. Wow, that's absolutely amazing to hear that, as you said so clearly, that you, firstly, that you were so young, you know, as a parent myself, my son's nine now, which is kind of crazy. But to think about that, as you're saying, you know, you cried, you didn't want to, you know, you were terrified that diving, because I think maybe people would assume that with the success that you've had, that, yeah, you kind of, you know, you were born to do this, and you've just had this, you know, uh, laser focus, and the, the determination means that you would just, you know, turn up every day, you're hungry for it, and you want it. But the reality, I guess is you can have all of those things and it's still difficult it's still challenging you're still a human being you're still emotions you still you were so young but also that that powerful visualization of actually drawing it writing it I think that is something that as adults is is very powerful but especially for children I think children have such a an amazing imagination and their their ability to visualize things without limits because they mm. haven't lived in the world that's limited them and told them oh you know don't don't get your hopes up or oh, that's unrealistic they don't know the word unrealistic so maybe exactly. that as well had maybe that played a part too because you probably do you know what I mean about not thinking that that's that's an that's a an audacious goal but it was like yeah that's that's the goal yeah absolutely and there were so many times along the way where you know throughout our testing and our training camps we used to get measured with our splits and our flexibility and how many pie cuts and I remember so clearly one of the coaches in particular was like you're never going to be able to do this you will never be able if you cannot do this you are the bottom of the class on every single thing but you can dive you're not going to make it for the long haul and I remember sometimes when you get well, I mean I was like nine years old ten years old and you're being told these things and like if you're being told that you're never going to be able to do something you know some kids are like oh, okay, well, then I may as well give up now. But I remember that being like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to show you, don't be, you know, you can't tell me I can't do anything. I'll, I'm going to do it and beat all of your divers. And Amazing. You know, that's what I ended up doing. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, indeed, I bet he's, uh, yeah, he lived to, to witness that. And I think I, I spoke about that recently myself in, in the book that I've written, because I think having that I can prove you wrong attitude, as you described, it can be detrimental, but if used in the right way, it can be, yeah, incredibly powerful. So I guess moving on from that, you know, you had so much success. And then obviously the games, as you said, that's what you'd work towards. That was, you know, it was the vision. And you, I think after that as well, you know, you catapulted into the kind of public, you know, life and TV shows and everything so I guess from there yeah where did you go from there and how did you manage to keep I guess a a mindset around training pushing yourself physically and mentally keeping a momentum and an energy because I'd be tempted to cut you know what guys I've done it put my feet up and you know enjoy you know but you're still going yeah I mean London 2012 was one of the best years but also one of the most challenging years I mean I lost my dad the year before the Olympics and that was a really really challenging time for me because it always been our dream because we had like you know I trained every single day so many hours traveled to so many places competed in so many competitions and my dad was like my biggest cheerleader and I remember going into those Olympic games I was like you know what he's not here but I have worked my ass off to get here and I have trained so hard and I've done everything in my power to be here when I'm, you know, at that point I've been diving for 11 years and I was like, you know, this is, this is it. I've trained for 11 years for these dives. If I mess up any of these dives, that's it. That whole, my whole life that I've spent doing this is for one moment. And I remember when I finally got when I got the medal like I'm not someone that shows like immense like emotion like cheering and things like that if I get step onto a podium but I remember standing onto that podium and there was this like wave of adrenaline and I felt like I could touch the roof and it was you know to see my mom and my brothers waving in the audience and just being like it was yeah it was a moment like no other and that high was just so incredible and you know I rode that high for you know, a few weeks. I mean, I just turned 18. So you can imagine all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I can go out and I can enjoy myself and I'm loving it. Um, But after that, I, you know, I dropped into, you know, some of the darkest times in my life because I didn't visualize past London 2012. It was one of those dreams that you never thought it was ever going to actually come. And you always were like chasing it thinking, oh, we've got loads of time. We've got loads of time. And then all of a sudden you're living it, you've done it. And then you're like, what now and I remember you know I started to try to go back to diving and I just felt like I couldn't and I didn't have the motivation I was like what am I going to do now do I really want to carry on doing this all of these opportunities came like talk to me and I was like do I just go down this path rather than you know I was thinking about all kinds of things and it got to a point in March 2013 where I was like you know what I, I can't do this anymore and I stopped I was like I can't do it um and it just so happened that it timed out with me traveling to California for some TV work. And I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to go do this. And this is what I want to do. And that was when I met my now husband, Lance. And that was when everything changed for me in terms of mindset, perspective, you name it. And I finally realized all there were so many things that I was struggling with and com- trying to come to terms with, but not understanding and all of a sudden I had this new wave of motivation, um, not only because I felt fallen in love with someone, but also because I, you know, Lance, my husband himself is a very successful person. So that in itself kind of gave me a bit of motivation to, you know, drive forward. And he was the only person that could really understand what it was like to win an award because he won an Oscar in 2009 and then how, 
much pressure comes with that and how the you know after that is really difficult to get yourself back up and back going again and because it's hard to talk to any of the other divers on the team or athletes about it because often they'll just be like well you just won an olympic medal why what are you moping around about like what are you on about but it's so it's it's a really yeah it was something that i never ever planned for so fascinating Tom honestly I'm listening to you and that was such a powerful story the way you described you know the feeling standing on the podium and what it meant to you to to be there and and to yeah to not have your dad there to witness that and and after all that hard work and then as you said describing what happens next because like you said people don't think about next you just that's the goal that's the finish line so what what happens after that and it's so amazing that yeah you did meet your husband and that he was able to I guess you know like you said he's been through it in a different way being able to understand where you were at and to kind of help to yeah motivate you to get you I guess you're on the same page right when you're on the same page it clicks that's it you feel it and 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 it's amazing that even falling in love you know I think having that um just that energy around you you know it's exciting and there was something else you mentioned there and it made me think um when you talked about almost other people not being able to relate and thinking, well, you've just won this medal and everything must be great. So therefore the pressure and everything's changed because as your success has happened, and I guess as you've leveled up, the pressure's also leveled up, the expectations leveled up, everything around you has leveled up, not just, you know, how do you, where do you go from there? How do you, yeah, that's, it's fascinating, really, really fascinating. And so now you're training again, you were training, I guess, for 2020 for Tokyo. And then this year, well, I mean, we got to talk yeah. about it. What has this year been like for you? I know for other athletes, having that goal, you know, this four-year training cycle that is so structured and geared towards that 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 one games. It's never happened before, right? It's never happened before. This this the uncertainty no, and then being cancelled. Exactly. There's, I mean, there's been cancellations of Olympics completely through world wars, um, but nothing through a pandemic. And it's, I mean, it's. It, it was really strange because I competed in Canada in uh, at the beginning of March. So just before lockdown, um, I had a bit of a rough start to an Olympic year, to be honest. I broke my hand in January. So I was, you know, already on the back foot or backhand, if you like, um, going into this year. Um, and then I competed in Canada and then we came back and we were getting ready to go to a competition in Russia. Um, but once we got to... Uh, I think it was like March 20th, something like that, when the lockdown announcement came, we were like, okay, well, this is, I mean, what happens now? We've got the Olympic Games to train for. How can we just not train and not do anything? And then the IOC came out with, okay, we might be postponing it. We'll make a decision in a few weeks. And then you were waiting for a few weeks and we didn't know if it was going to go ahead. And then they announced that it was going to be postponed. And then we didn't know when it was going to be postponed. So it was like all of this uncertainty um, and it almost like felt better once they said, you know what, we're going next year, same dates or we'll move slightly one day or whatever, but, um, we're going to move it to next year. And then we're going to go for a uh, Tokyo 2021. Uh, that kind of gave me, I think I tried to use lockdown as, and I tried to see the positive side of everything. Like I got to spend so much more time with my son um in this year than I ever would have if it was an Olympic year I mean at the beginning of lockdown you could say a few words and things like that but now he's having like full-blown conversations climbing on everything he's grown so much so I would have missed that whole phase so I'm very grateful um although however it is obviously very sad everything that's going on but you know 
spending that time with my son and my family, it puts things into perspective of what actually matters most. And I think if everybody could get perspective on, you know, because people can put so much pressure on themselves with their jobs and school and, you know, for me and my sport, but actually what matters most is keeping everyone safe and healthy. And so now, and especially with my son going into competitions, I don't necessarily care as much how well I do um, because I know that I'm going to go home to that support system and feel their love and all that kind of stuff, which in turn allows me to compete better because I don't worry so much about how I'm going to do. And I also got to spend so much more time working on the things I never would have. For example, flexibility, yoga, stretching, doing like visualizations of all my dives, things that you know, kind of get pushed aside when you're like full training, like you feel like you never have time to do the stuff that takes lots of time, but is really beneficial. So I was able to really strip back to the things I needed to do. Um, And I've now come out of the other side of lockdown in much better physical condition, much better mental condition, and excited for the year ahead and just almost feels like a almost like a victory lap, a bonus year that I didn't think I was going to have. So it's kind of like, you know, balls to the wall, give it everything you've got, arrive in Tokyo. You know, the the aim is to arrive into Tokyo and stand on that board in that competition and be able to say to myself, I have done everything in my power to be in the best possible position to do my best today. And if I can arrive feeling like that, I'll be a happy man. Yes, a bonus year. You see, I love that optimism. I'm an optimistic person too. And as you said, this year, yeah, it is sad. It's been really difficult for a lot of people for different reasons. But seeing it and viewing it in that way of, you know what, this has been a bonus year because I think for many people, they've been given the time to do something they wouldn't have necessarily done before, whether that's more time, you know, children are off school or less time working, we're focusing on those other things. As you said, I really like that idea that it's a bonus year. It's given us extra time to, yeah, recharge the back to refocus and yeah I'm excited for you we'll all be watching of course uh, next year when the, yeah. when the Olympics goes ahead and yeah that, and I love that idea of a bonus year so I've had other athletes on the show and one thing you know I'm always in awe of professional sports people the, the dedication the mindset the kind of you have to you know to become the best in the world I really I mean I don't know what it takes I've never done it but what I witness and that dedication just continues to inspire me but now I think you know the modern athlete the world that we're in now as well as training as well as being a competitive athlete you also have you know personal brands you're also you're also public profiles yourself so how do you manage you know I know you have a YouTube channel your YouTube has had over a million views you do weekly content on there you use other social channels and as I mentioned TV shows events how do you manage all of that alongside this laser focus and training? It's, it's interesting because I find with social media, I just don't think about it. I'm not obsessive over social media. I just post as and when I have something to post. I'm not someone that thinks, oh my gosh, I need to post this on this certain day. And oh my God, I need to post this. I mean, with branded stuff, it's slightly different. But with the stuff that's me, I just um, post when I want to post what I want to post. I tried the whole, I need to post every single day or every other day and I need to use these hashtags or whatever. And I was just like, you know what? This isn't how I start, why I started social media. I started social media to stay in contact with my friends and the people that wanted to follow my diving career. I don't post things for people to, uh, you know, 
I don't worry about engagement. I don't worry about if I'm increasing in followers or losing followers. I'm just on my own journey and I'm doing my, like, I'm doing me. And if you don't like what I'm doing, you don't have to follow me. And that's the kind of, you know, mindset that I have with social media because you see so much, um, you know, so often like people being consumed by social media um, and they live their life for social media. And I think having a son has allowed me to, you know, be more present and not think, oh, I need to take a photo of that for Instagram or, oh, I need to do this for Instagram and actually just enjoying the experiences and just being, you know, being in the moment. And I think that's something that I've learned in the last couple of years that's really been, I don't know, it allows you to just enjoy life more. You won a silver medal in the Commonwealth Games in 94 and a bronze medal at Sydney in 2000, but you went on to win the double gold at Athens in 2004. So from 94 to 2004, you know, it took 10 years to achieve that that double gold. But oh my gosh, what a way to do it. You know, that 800 metre race was incredible. The photo finish, like it was the, the commentary, it just gave me goosebumps to watch. But also the 1500 then to come back and, you know, to win that, I think it has to be probably one of the most iconic and incredible wins in Olympic history. So for anyone listening who's like, maybe if you haven't seen it, you you probably have, but if you haven't, then I would encourage you to go to YouTube and check it out because it's just amazing. The commentary on the last 200 metres of that 1500 race, (laughs) even though I know you win and even though I've seen it so many times, listening to him, you're just like, oh my gosh, the power and the speed. It's like you come around the bend. I say 250 metres in, you're kind of behind, you know, on on the straight. You come around the bend with so much power and then you this acceleration down the home straight it's literally just like there is no you are flying so yeah I mean that 10 year trajectory you know all that hard work all the injuries all the setbacks it paid off it it, the ultimate payoff it really did yeah I mean (laughs) you know when you describe it now because obviously I have uh, memories of it and I play it a lot to my corporate um, people that I speak to and yeah you know so for those that don't know, so yeah, 94 was my first gold medal. And then in between that and 2004, I'd won, I don't know, 13, 14 international medals. Um, but my dream was since 14. So in terms of longevity of having a dream is, uh, you know, it can come true is one thing I will say to people. But, you know, you learn a lot about yourselves in those times. So even though I won two gold medals at the end of my career, I think the 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 knowledge and the learning and the setbacks and all the things that if you give up on it, you never know what the outcome's going to be. That was all part of that journey, I think, you know, and I believe in fate a lot. You know, when you've gone through so many ups and downs and roller coaster rides, there's two ways you can do things. You can literally give up on ghosts or you just power through and hope that the future um, that you're hoping for is going to be, you know, there in, in written down in your journey. And I just kept to that you know I just kept to that pathway that that's that's what I believe my future would uphold so when I actually won especially the 800 meters which was a complete shock I mean I have to admit hence the eyes popping out the head um (laughs) it was almost like how has this come true now because I'd thought about it for so long but I'd been so close but yet so far you know a silver medal isn't a gold a bronze medal isn't a silver isn't a gold yet they're brilliant but they're not the actual ultimate and that could be a tenth of a second that splits you which has happened to me in many races tenth of a second can make the difference between the absolute everything you've ever wanted coming true and 
it not, you know. Um, and so when I won the 800 by literally 0.05 of a second, I still won gold. But as that mem- that thing inside you is like, I've actually done it. That was the hardest thing to compute. And then obviously I had six races in nine days with my dream being the 1500 meters. So I thought for the first time, I think in my whole career, everything was so meticulously planned down to the nth degree, you know, nutrition, relaxation, ice baths, massage, preparation, psychological kind of um, enhancement in terms of visualization, everything to become the champion that I wanted to become. And first year in seven years, I didn't have injury. You just have a, a big sense of confidence back, you know, comes back to you and your self-esteem raises. And it literally was like I was flying. I had Angel written on my shoulder, tattooed on it, because I felt literally like I was being pulled up. Oh I mean, it's hard to explain, but it literally felt like I was being pulled up. It's amazing. It's amazing <laughs> to hear. And as you know, as I said, that now even hearing you say that, that confidence and that power, you know, you just said then all the kind of pieces come together. So, you know, you've got that confidence because you're like, I'm not injured. I've just won this. I've got the, you know, you, you know that you've, you've done all the things that you had to do, as you said, the nutrition, the sleep, you've done the work, you've done it already, I guess, mm. when you get to that stage, if you had and, and we all know, you know, we're not Olympians and we're, a lot of the runners that listen to this show, but we all know those races that you're undertrained for, even if it's a 5k half marathon, whatever. And it is, pain from the from the, from the first stride you're <laughs> yeah. like you have not trained for this but I think you know in complete contrast to that that as I said that power when you come around the bend honestly I want people to go and watch it as soon as they finish listening to this episode because it is it's like you just got rocket fuel there's no there was no way by the time it gets to the last what like 30 meters there's no way that's it you know it was amazing honestly amazing to see and well, I have to say, you know, because people always say to me, I looked around at the top bend. I was looking around and everyone says, why were you looking around? I said, because I remember there was one athlete from the 800 meters that had got silver in that race. And the only athlete that I actually had any kind of visual attachment to was her. And she was behind me. Everyone else is like silhouettes. So when I decided to go, I was literally looking for her and I saw she was way off the back so I just decided to go but I actually think that if you actually look at times it's probably the one that slows down the least rather than me going necessarily the fastest because I was running really even paced running and this is something for runners generally you know because you know we've been in races and the adrenaline's there you know everything that you've trained for suddenly it becomes a different beast when you come to a race but it's not it's the same all you're doing is putting a race title you're still putting your trainers on you're still getting there you're still getting to the start line you're still starting your watch you're still running but with through adrenaline we go off so fast and then you forget your pace judgment you know suddenly then uh, somebody comes in front of you it knocks your psyche it's all of those things but actually you know when I was competing in there it was almost like I'd been there hundreds of times before I had raced since I was 12 years old hundreds of races it was nothing different it was the enormity of it being different and I had to just compute in my head that actually I know how to race I know how to run and I had to stay even paced running so that I was most efficient in that race and that's just through knowledge I suppose and you know a long career but anyone can get to that point where they know how they run best Mm. 
and don't adapt and change it when you get into a race, which a lot of people do. Yeah, me. I just get excited, that basically. But also, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, you know, we're talking now and we're talking about that, you know, and, and that is just a small, small part of your career, right? And I'm sure it's almost that you know when you know the ending as I said you know you're going to win you know the story has a happy ending but before that before you got to that stage you know there was ups and downs and I think for people listening who maybe you know whatever their goal is they're probably not an Olympian although I have had some young athlete Olympians on the show who I know listen so uh, shout out (laughs) to them but if you're not you know an Olympian if you're not an athlete if you're working towards any goal in your life personal professional I think perseverance is something that when people talk about it or they sometimes say well yeah I've been going at that for a year or I've been trying that for three years and I'm still not where I want to be or it's still not you know getting getting traction you know am I actually should I just give up on it but actually you know we talked then about a decade what would you say in terms of yeah what does it really take to persevere because I'm sure there were times if you were injured or if other people potentially might have doubted that you could have gone on to achieve that goal how do you carry on then when you don't know that that it's going to be a happy ending well the the thing is with perseverance and with life generally you have to be embedded into that dream you have to have the passion it has to become you it has to become something you want to do you know because to persevere is to go through a journey no matter what that journey is and to stick to that end goal and result and not give up on it too easy when actually you know kind of that next one thing you did could have achieved everything you ever wanted you know and we all have points in our life where there's little barriers or things that aren't just going right. And you have to take a look at those and go, is that a sign? Is that just telling you that you need to adapt your situation? You need to change something along the way that's going to give you back onto the pathway that you wanted. Because a lot of the times when we come to a brick wall or barrier or we feel like we're never progressing, we give up. We give up because it seems too hard, but nobody that's achieved in life gave up. They just went through the hard bits. They just went through the journey. They broke through the brick wall. They jumped over the wall. They went round the outside, but they found a way to move forward. So it's about adaption in your mindset and also kind of just re-evaluating, looking at where you're going and what you have been doing and not be afraid to make minor changes and tweaks, not be fearful of making those changes or fearful of uh, what an outcome is going to be. Because the moment you're fearful of anything, again, you get frightened, you get scared, you you then start to worry, you then start to lose confidence and self-belief, and then you just got put yourself on a back foot. You just have to remember that you're on that journey for a reason. You're trying to get somewhere for a reason. You started it for a reason. And how much do you want it is the answer to you. Mm. Wow. Hear it. Hear it. Listen to it. Write it down. Whatever you need to do. It's really, really powerful. And, you know, for anyone, if if there are young athletes listening to this, they've had to change. They've had to adapt this year. You know, you mentioned about being able to adapt this year if they were training to working towards the Olympics or anything else, you know, for them to not be able to train, to not also the the not knowing if the games is even going to go ahead or, or what those conditions are going to be like, what would you say to, yeah, to those young athletes who are at the start of their journey to, to kind of keep motivated and, and to be able to adapt to what this year's thrown at them? Do you know what, what, what message I would give is a quite frank one is that you're lucky. There's so many athletes out there that were going to go to this Olympic Games who now their career is over. They're never going to get a chance to go to another Olympic Games because that four-year cycle or even a one-year cycle for them was too much. 
You know, this was their last chance, their last hope. And so actually, you get a chance to still do it. You get a chance to still compete. You get a chance to still uh, go for trying to get into a team and at least have a a future and a, a career in front of you. You know, it could be that this year came along anyway. You were going to an Olympic Games or hoping to get in the team. You got injured and didn't go. You know, as sport, there's no guarantees. So you can only adapt to this situation and unfortunately, you couldn't compete this year. And it is really disappointing, especially if that's everything you've wanted. And you know, God, the thought of Athens not of being there and my career being over, basically, would have been disastrous. However, as a young person going through sport, you've got so many other opportunities. You know, a lot of sports have Commonwealth Games, European champs, world champs, Olympics, their whole um, season. And yes, it's been completely (laughs) mashed up, ruined and, you know, whatever. But this is what's going to make you a better athlete than the ones that are worrying about the fact that it was moved, the fact that your year didn't go to plan. Those of you that go, okay, this is life. This is part of the cycle. I've got more time to prepare better. I've got more time to learn about myself. The things that weren't going quite right, I can make changes, adapt them, get my team behind me. It might be even better next year. So you have to think positive. Otherwise, you might as well give up. You're not going to give up. So think positive. Yes. And even if you're not an athlete and you're someone, for example, an entrepreneur, a business owner, you know, for anyone, this year has not been what we planned. You know, no one could have predicted no. this would have gone this way. And I think for, you know, I'm a parent, I think for parents looking at their children's education, thinking, hang on, they've kind of missed, it feels like they've missed a year of school. And, you know, so many things, you know, places I wanted to go or things I wanted to do. And we've all had to kind of, yeah, give up, give up certain things and change things. So I think that same thing applies, right? See it as and you know be optimistic and see it as extra bonus time what can you do I guess to give yourself a longer runway or to do more research or more prep or whatever you whatever Mm. use the time in some way yeah I think you're right and that's what I tell people all the time is that you know adaption is key um and re-evaluating, refocusing has been actually a strength to a lot of people. You know, we have to remember that some, unfortunately, you know, it feels like our existence is within four walls and that the future that we had and the dreams and aspirations we had are kind of gone. Well, they, why should, they shouldn't be gone because this existence won't be forever and there is a future for everybody if you stay healthy and you're fit and you're lucky. So you kind of have to still dream and create vision and a pathway for yourself. And actually, this is a good time to do it, you know, to think more clearly around what you want to be, who you want to be. And, and maybe there are major check minds changes you want to adapt to now you know whatever industry you're in whatever situation you're in you know it gives you a chance to look at yourself and to just think well am I happy with where I was going or actually this has given me a good like wake-up call and I need to make those positive changes instead of dwelling on what happened in March April May June you know this year has gone so damn fast and if you actually look at it a lot of us could have said oh gosh, I wish, you know, if I'd known we were going to be in this position again in June, July, I would have done whatever. Well, don't think about it, (laughs) you know, kind of start to do it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? 
Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 